Hi, I want to welcome you to something a little different than the normal Noise Creators podcast in that this is going to actually be a chapter from the audiobook of my last book, Processing Creativity. They say if you love something, then you have to set it free. So that's exactly what I'm doing. A year ago, I put out this book and I really want it to keep spreading to people. And I realized one of the ways you have to do that sometimes is by making it free. So from right now till July 1st, this book will be free and a different chapter of it will come out every week for the next few weeks. And it'll stay available for free till July 1st. And then I'm going to delete these podcasts as well. During this time, the Kindle book will be 99 cents, but the physical book will remain at the regular price because, you know, they cost money to print. So enjoy this free audiobook. It's a very similar subject to what you hear on this podcast most of the time. And if you enjoy it, please, please, please pay it back. You know, this book usually costs almost $20 on Audible. The way you can pay it back is just telling somebody else who will enjoy it about it. It's really important to me that these ideas spread. And that's why I'm doing this. So I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you spread the word. Thank you. Hey, before we get started, I want to tell you about Manic Merch, who's sponsoring this podcast. They want you to stop selling merch like an idiot. In 10 minutes, you can upload designs and sell merch with your own store of every popular merch item, while Manic Merch handles sales, shipping, customer service issues so that creators can create and not be bothered while still profiting the way they would if they did it themselves. Manic Merch is perfect for musicians, movies, YouTubers, podcasts, meme makers, startups, and anyone else who has good ideas for merch designs. Let me tell you about some of the key features of Manic Merch. You can set up a store in minutes for no money down. All you have to do is upload your merch designs and tell us how much you want to make off each one and we'll take care of the rest. You can avoid all the headaches of customer service emails, packing up packages, and heading to the post office. There's no financial risk since you put no money down or headaches for you to start selling merch. Fans buy more merch when they get to choose how to express themselves. You can upload your merch designs and sell more merch by allowing fans to choose the colors and what they want them printed on. Whether it's t-shirts, sweatshirts, lighters, hats, or coffee mugs, they have over 20 different items that you can print on. You get to set your own prices where you can lower your prices if you want to sell more and raise them if you want to make more from each sale. You can also get the email of everyone who buys from you and you get paid every month on time and you also have the ability to track sales. Stop selling merch like an idiot and sign up for a store at manicmerch.com today. Introduction. Why write a book on creativity and music? There's a constant discussion going on in every circle of the internet, as well as the bars and clubs across the world, about why a record fails to live up to expectations. Why is this record not as good as their last one? This record should have been the same as their first. They've been making the same record forever. I like the demo better. When looking at the creative process from the outside, most fans don't understand why the musicians they love can't see what's so clear to them. Make the album the fans want. It seems so obvious to them what the musicians should do. What they don't understand is these musicians aren't making their decisions based on cash grabs, trend jumping, phoning it in, or the other assumptions commonly made by fans. While these are the common assumptions, the reason an album's vision succeeds or falls flat are much more practical. Contrary to what's usually discussed, these pitfalls stem from musicians' lack of knowledge about what they should be doing to make music that both they and their fans want to hear. There's a treacherous path of decisions, ego checks, bad advice, and skills that plague musicians when they try to make a great record. To get through it, they need extensive consideration of these plagues, along with a resilient drive to authentically express what they feel. While modern technology has given musicians the most amazing tools to make music with, no one tool can show them how to consistently release great album after great album. Instead, they stumble into sophomore slumps, 
aka making a disappointing second record, or inauthentic career-killing records that alienate fans. This book exists to fill a void of mentorship. Look no further than the ramblings of countless music business veterans over the past 15 years on how the music business no longer develops artists. For the uninitiated, from the 70s through the 90s, musicians that had the potential to develop into a great artist were signed to big-budget record deals. The hope was they'd eventually make a great record after learning a few lessons from recording some lackluster early albums. It was expected that on their first albums, they'd be finding their sound, yielding a small fan base, and hopefully, by their third or fourth record, they'd become a creative force with a large fan base that would justify the early investment. David Bowie, Kate Bush, Fleetwood Mac, Bruce Springsteen, and The Who are all legendary acts whose early records fell on deaf ears, but their label kept investing in them until they became the classic artists we know today. Today, this nurturing comes in the form of indie labels. However, the idea that musicians can receive a consistent paycheck that would enable them to devote their full attention to this artistic growth is nearly extinct, as few indie artists are cash flush enough to forgo a day job. The importance of this artistic development has been abandoned after years of humility-lacking record label executives, aka A&R, continually being confused when an artist gains success, yet they fail to resonate with the A&R's old jaded ears. After all, if they don't understand how a musician got popular, it all must be luck. Not really. We all have different emotional needs we look to comfort with music. Instead of acknowledging that it's impossible to have universal taste that understands what's emotionally appealing about every artist, this lack of humility leads A&R to only sign quote-unquote sure things that need minimal development to recoup an investment. This turns record labels into banks with a marketing department instead of patrons of creative mentorship, polluting the music business with a practice that rarely yields lasting artists and places favor on short-term investments. While some of the best music is being made today, the ability for musicians to sustain their creativity has suffered. Since this mentorship has declined over the past two decades, the decisions of A&R, management, and artists are commonly based off poorly thought-out assumptions instead of research and practices that develop great music. While researching this book, I witnessed countless records fall short of their expectations. I was able to trace back these failures to a belief in a few creative, quote-unquote, wives' tales that, had they been assessed properly, would have led to a much better record. Due to the lack of investment from labels, the responsibility to seek out mentors who can guide musicians to avoid creative downfalls is placed solely on the artist and their management. Today, this mentorship is typically done by studying the endless amount of articles, documentaries, and sound bites that litter the web. While the internet has brought a vast democratization of music, the knowledge of how to make good creative decisions is kept behind closed doors or spills out in so many sparse sources that loopholes in this knowledge are inevitable. While nearly every musician greatly values creativity, they do little to no research on how to do it effectively. They want a highly creative result, but have little know-how of how to gain one, outside of taking in small pieces of advice while imitating stories that they've heard of those they admire. When I decided to write this book, I felt the need to take in every bit of the advice musicians would need to achieve these results and assemble it in a single source. Record labels don't put their money where their mouths are. Despite everyone in the music business beating to death the advice, good music is the best marketing tool. The overwhelming majority of their practices show they don't practice what they preach. Record budgets are shrinking year after year, and little to no thought is put into how to nurture an artist's musical output. Producers are hired based on poor assumptions of repeated performance, despite every artist having different blanks to be filled in by a producer. Even worse, minimal research and favors-for-favors deals lead to producers with connections getting a job instead of the right producer, which doesn't put the artist first. Those involved with an artist's development treat their music like a meal that needs to be cooked quickly, then served to get the next product sold, instead of an expression they claim to value nurturing. 
One of the more telling stories to illustrate this point was told to me on a podcast I did with Riley Breckenridge of Thrice. When the band made their first album for indie Hopeless Records, they were able to write two songs a month in a two-weeks-on, two-weeks-off schedule. These 13 songs resulted in their sophomore record, The Illusion of Safety. The record catapulted the band from playing to 20 people a night to 100-plus seat venues, all on a small indie budget. Thrice was quickly snatched up by a major label, where they were thrown into a model that puts profits before artistic nurture. With the grueling tour schedule of their debut LP, they were left with three months to rest and write their major label debut, which would see countless dollars devoted to promotion. The result left the band feeling lackluster about the record despite its success, as their previous record had delivered new emotional colors to a genre that was largely stagnant. Their major label debut, The Artist in the Ambulance, was a reiteration on their previous release, sharing many of the same traits. Instead of continuing to exceed their hopes of developing their sound, they made the safe record that was expected of them since they were left with a minimal amount of time to devote to this development. For their next record, they didn't succumb to the pressures of the label and devoted the needed time to reach the heights they wanted to achieve. The result is Vihisu, the record that Breckenridge says is the reason he still has a career playing music more than a decade later. The record exceeded creative expectations, being commonly cited as one of the most influential works in the genre. Today, artists are expected to write a record in a single month in between tours and deliver exceptional results. Just a decade ago, they commonly had more time than that to get inspired, never mind write an album's worth of material. They get handed a budget that's hardly worthy of reaching the heights labels claim to believe the artist has in them. Little evaluation is given when demos are finished or to even listen to tracking rough mixes before going to a mixer. As long as the final product is pumped out quickly, hopefully the public will buy it. After all, the artist needs to get back on the road immediately since the only way the booking agent, manager, and label will make money is sales of more albums and merch. There's a better way to harness songs from artists that allows creativity to flourish while not costing much more money, but may take some time away from the content machine work ethic that's pushed on musicians today. With proper consideration, they can make more emotionally resonant music that affects listeners at a deeper level. Since there's been no clear answer on how to get musicians paid more fairly for their work, allocating resources to get a greater creative result can help musicians get past the tough hand they get dealt in today's music business by establishing deeper emotional bonds with listeners. Writing the wrongs of the creativity industrial complex. There's a massive creative self-help industrial complex that pumps out articles of half-truths all day. This book is written to correct many of the misconstrued quotations in these articles each day by applying them to a musical context. I've read far too many articles on creativity that oversimplify it to, this is the cure for every problem, or butcher quotes from famous people. Instead, it's time to discuss what the common advice really means for musicians' decisions. Since the word creativity didn't come along until 1870 and wasn't in widespread use until the 1950s, we're only still beginning to get good at discussing it. Most of what musicians are taught about the subject ranges from flat-out false to lacking a crucial detail that gets overlooked, resulting in many of the toxic relationships and unfulfilled visions littered throughout musicians' lives. I found remedies for the most common breakdowns in the creative process while gaining insight into how to see them more accurately. I hope this book gives a greater deliberation to your creative decisions, as well as create an environment that makes you happier with the music you make. Thoughts in this book aren't here to tell you what to do. They're here to give you more thoughts and evaluation to the decisions you have to make throughout the creative process. In the internet age, the web content vultures circle to find an article to write about every exception to a rule, ignoring the common rules where most artists achieve the creative result they're looking for. The story of what works most of the time is rarely as interesting as the exception of making an amazing creation in spite of the quote-unquote rules. There's no doubt there will be times that you can find an exception to some of the ideas in this book. Every example in this book has an exception, but I try to focus on the best practices along with how science can help us improve ourselves. 
There are no rules to creativity, but knowing science, best practices, and common rules can help you find the best ways to get the results you want. A no BS approach. Popular books on creativity regularly talk about intangible concepts such as angels, muses, and gods. Too often in the past, authors of these books have equated what they don't understand or haven't researched to be intangible with an uncontrollable mystique instead of concepts that can be discovered, enhanced, or influenced by applying emerging scientific research or common psychological techniques. Even worse, what authors don't understand or sufficiently research, they chalk up to unknown mysteries with no rational explanation. Sadly, the subject isn't thoroughly researched by those who traffic in it, since by nature they'd rather be creating than researching. I poured over scientific papers, thousands of interviews, a hundred some odd books, documentaries, and years of active practice to draw correlations and actionable ways you can get past blocks to get an outcome you're happy with. I've written these ideas in a simple way that leaves little guessing about intangible concepts and instead gives you actionable methods to get the creative results you want. What to consider throughout your reading. Some information in this book is bound to be obvious to you. I'm a deep believer that any book you read is a decision to prioritize your time on a subject you wish to explore. During that time, you should consider how you further your thoughts on a subject. As long as the book spurs growth on the subject, your time was used wisely, making your consumption of the book a success. Contrary to what many bad teachers tell you, nonfiction books are made for you to consider how you feel about a subject, not just for memorizing quotes. The research shows that contemplation in your creative endeavors leads to a better output. If you don't find certain parts of this book to be true, that doesn't mean you should find the rest of the book invalid. I hope you disagree with me at times. In any conversation you have, there are moments of consensus as well as disagreements. Books are written to further a conversation that allows a subject to evolve and extract conclusions from. Creative processes are an ever-evolving subject, changing faster than ever as we see more dilemmas presented with the countless technological innovations we see every day. Please, break the rules, find a better way, and then share it with me. In fact, if you disagree with me, let's have an exchange over Skype or email. I want to talk to you. It's also important to note that I'm not telling you how to produce records out of a belief that I'm the greatest record producer to ever walk the earth. I'm far from it. But what I'm very good at is translating great ideas into easy-to-understand language. This book isn't how I think you should work. It's thoughts to help figure out the creative decisions that work best for you. Creativity in Me For nearly two decades, I've spent about 300 days a year helping musicians fulfill their creative vision. I was lucky enough to get into the music business during the last days of big-budget analog tape recording, as the business turned to the early days of scrappy Pro Tools DIY recording, allowing me to learn lessons from both worlds. I've had the chance to work with some of the greatest minds in music on down to the most novice musicians. Sadly, this means I've also watched countless musicians struggle through many unneeded fights and existential crises caused by creative frustration. Whether it's not knowing how to get the best out of a composition, harboring a toxic environment that creates a vacuum of ideas, or not knowing what order to work in to get the best results, I've seen it all. I'm compelled to read musicians of these unnecessary struggles, and it gave me an urgency to get this book out into the world. When I finished my last book, Get More Fans, The DIY Guide to the New Music Business, a 700-plus page exploration of how musicians promote their music, the most dismissive comment I received was, All you need to do is make great music and it'll promote itself. While there's no better marketing tool than great music, this oversimplifies a vast landscape that's hard to navigate where you still need a deep pool of knowledge to get through once people like your music. Conversely, even if a musician did a great job promoting their music and it wasn't that good, it would still fail since doing great advertising for a bad product is the fastest way to give it a horrible reputation. Since I agree that great music is the best marketing tool for itself, I figure the next book I should write is about how you make great music. Writing Get More Fans was some of the most fulfilling work I've ever done. 
Hearing from thousands of readers on how it helped them fulfill their dreams filled me with a joy far greater than helping a single band make a successful record. This time around, I wanted to assemble a book that could do the same for musicians looking to make great music. I've seen musicians show ambition towards getting the most out of their creative vision and subsequently fail by ignoring key practices that get the most out of their work. It pains me to see creators being tortured by their art, so I hope anyone who reads this book will be happier with the songs they make as well as any other creative work they do. My passion to rid people of their creative frustration stems from knowing it in my own life. I was a depressed, even suicidal teenager, experiencing the frustration of creative hurdles that would send me into depression, along with the extreme happiness I felt when I could overcome them. I had no map of how to get around these blocks to know that some of the struggle was normal. As I got older, I learned how to get past these hurdles to become the extremely happy person I am today. I hope this book helps to rid the world of the misery I went through as a teenager by giving a better idea of how to get over the creative hurdles you experience throughout your growth as a creator. During those teen years experimenting with recording equipment, I attracted the notice of America's largest and most esteemed freeform radio station, WFMU. I stayed there for nearly a decade working with groups such as The Magnetic Fields, The Sea and Cake, Spoon, and countless other indie bands. This job gave me the daily experience of speaking with many great minds in up-and-coming groups that would eventually go on to influence millions of musicians. It also exposed me to the biggest music nerds around who would play me the great minds of underground music such as Can, Noy, Steve Reich, and much more at a young age. As I entered my 20s, I experienced the defeat of trying to make music on a computer that could occasionally record four tracks at a time clunky Akai samplers, and early MIDI synthesizers. As bands other than my own hired me to produce their records, I got to work in various NYC studios where I began to learn how to work this complicated equipment and express myself. I then took a job at Alan Douches's West West Side Music, the top mastering studio for indie labels in America for the past three decades. Every day I got to talk with music business veterans who were responsible for running the careers of the biggest indie musicians out there. I got to see their process while picking their brains about music. Getting to be in the same room as many of the most respected brains in music allowed me to become hyper-aware of the thoughts that go into making great music. Being able to converse with a wide variety of artists as they're making the final decisions of their creative works while they're fresh in their minds taught me a valuable lesson about the consideration that goes into crafting classic albums. Over this time, I've had a hand in the production, engineering, mixing, and mastering of well over a thousand records. I've been lucky enough to sit in a room with legends like Joey and D.D. Ramon, Stephen Merritt, John McIntyre, Robert Smith, and Daryl McDaniels, a.k.a. DMC of Run DMC. And I've been lucky enough to work on records as a producer, engineer, mixer, or mastery engineer for groups such as Animal Collective, Weird Al Yankovic, Brand New, The Misfits, The Menzingers, Bad Books, No Effects, Dialect, North Star, and Lifetime. I got to work with producer Steve Evitz making records with Say Anything, Saves the Day, Senses Fail, and The Dillinger Escape Plan. I traveled the world with producer Ross Robinson to work on records with The Cure, Limp Biscuit, and Chase Pagan. On the business side, I've been able to see the creative breakdowns from the perspective of those who need artists to make money. I've been a part of record labels such as Go-Kart, Lost Tape Collective, and Drug Front Records. I managed the groups Man Overboard and Transit, who signed to one of the largest indie labels in the world, Rise Records. I co-founded a service called Noise Creators, which connects musicians with the best producers in music. I also teach courses on recording music for the amazing service, Creative Live. I've been lucky enough to see the creative process from countless angles and hope you enjoy what I've learned. I'm fortunate to keep meeting amazing musicians who I make great music with each day. Along the way, I found countless correlations between the research I did for this book and what I've witnessed in my own work. As I learned these lessons, I found myself doing the most creative work I've ever done, and I'm extremely thankful for the time I put into learning it all. Not a producer, but instead, a creative director. A thought I've had for the past decade is that my job title record producer might be inaccurate. In nearly any other profession where the term producer is used, it's applied to someone charged with overseeing our clerical work. 
What the modern record producer does is more similar to what's called a creative director in the graphic design, film, fashion, advertising, media, or entertainment industries. I know this well, since my father held this job title in the advertising world for over 40 years. Most record producers spend each day helping musicians get past creative hurdles while establishing a process that will help get the best song from an artist. We figure out how to convey the artist's vision while staying within their limitations, budget, musicians, technology, etc. Since producers commonly make more music than the artists, it's their job to have experience figuring out the best practices that lead to a better creative outcome, while avoiding commonly made mistakes. In my practice as a record producer, the work has been much more than budget, allocation, and hiring duties that producers in film, advertising, and many other fields get charged with. The creative development record producers do each day sounds much more like the job title of a creative director. Getting on the same page. Before we get to the fun part, it's important to quickly establish some working definitions, since these words are used in poor context throughout the content farms of the internet today. There are also some terms that are rather nerdy or only used in the music business that may be helpful to understand. Creativity, the use of the imagination, especially in the production of new artistic work. Emotional resonance, the amount of emotion we feel when reacting to a performance of a song. This resonance could be a feeling of apathy when hearing a badly performed cover of a song you enjoy, or a dancing frenzy when a song compels you. Epiphany, a sudden realization of great truth that connects concepts you didn't see a connection between before. Fluency, the ability to express oneself easily and articulately. Innovation, a new method, idea, or product that's commonly accepted to possess new traits and purposes. Intent, a purpose you're pursuing, such as the expression of an emotion or idea. Trusting your gut. When you hear a flaw in a song, you'll feel a slight lack of comfort about it. Trusting to listen to that lack of comfort is trusting your gut. Perspire-perspiration. The opposite of inspiration. This is what you create from your inspiration. Resistance. This is a catch-all term for what holds you back from creating. Riffs or beats. A small part of a song that's commonly a hook or the basis for further building. Suits. A&R, record label employees, managers, booking agents, and all the other business types who have a concern for your art making money. Team. As someone with no interest in sports or corporate lingo, this term can be a bit cringeworthy. Trust me, there will be no falling backwards so your drummer can catch you in this book. We know how that'll turn out. Sadly, the use of the word team is the best way to describe those who you collaborate with. Whether it's band members, studio musicians, your management, producer, or A&R, those you discuss your music with are a team, so you should all be on the same side. I use this word since I can't find a better one. If you could find one, please help me out. I'll rewrite this whole book just to get this bad taste out of my mouth. You're good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. I think it is helpful to dispel some myths about being creative before we go any further in order to calm those who are fearful of being creative. There's a wide variety of myths that have been perpetuated about those who are good at it. These myths make amateurs feel they shouldn't even try to create since their dreams will get squashed by their overwhelming mediocrity. They believe they don't have what it takes from reading stories about outliers that make for good clickbait stories on blogs. These stories get passed around in creative circles as fact all too often, despite science telling a much different story. Doubt, insecurity, and fear embody huge parts of the resistance many artists go through, and these myths are commonly the cause. As we grow up, we begin to believe stories that tell us we're not creative. In kindergarten, over 50% of children identify as being creative, but by the time they're teenagers, that number drops to 
While I don't believe everyone is a creative genius, it's a bad idea to paint this picture so black and white. While some of the drop in creative pursuits comes from children who decide to go into less creative fields, a lot of this doubt is from myths we tell ourselves about who can and cannot be creative. Let's dispel some myths. Myth. Creativity is inherited. Any evidence that creativity is inherited is purely anecdotal. Instead, many think that being around an environment where creative best practices are abundant leads to this enhanced ability. There's much more evidence that it's developed by acquiring a set of traits. Scientists have found that at most genetics contribute only 10% to someone's creativity. Myth, those with high IQs are more creative. Donald McKinnon surveyed creatives such as architects and scientists, finding that those who were more creative showed little correlation to their creative output and IQ. Instead, the greatest creators of any IQ developed a process that allowed them to stumble upon the best ideas. He found that once you cross an IQ of 120, intelligence has absolutely no bearing on whether you'll be more creative. Neuroscience has proven countless times that unless your brain is severely damaged, you have the potential to be creative. Myth. You need to be depressed to be highly creative. Nancy C. Andreessen did a famous study on the Iowa Writers' Workshop, considered to be the best writing program in the world. This study focused on depression in artists. She found that 80% of the attendees suffered from mental health issues, a common thread being an inability to create in their darkest throes of their depression. Social psychologist Joseph Forgas says melancholia, which is often considered depression's less overbearing cousin, can help creativity. Yet sadness diminishes insight. Comfort in melancholia allows creators to focus with a painstaking refinement on their works. While depression isn't a necessary ingredient for creativity, there's something to be said for the sadness stemming from a significant loss as a creative accelerator. A study of great creators shows they often suffer a huge loss at an early age where the pain from this loss becomes creative inspiration as well as a motivator. Myth. You need to be insane to be highly creative. Schizophrenia or being clinically insane doesn't enhance creativity. The evidence doesn't bear scrutiny since most of those diagnosed aren't functional enough to create. Every study has proven that mental illness in hypercreatives is the exception, not the rule. Psychologists say instead that creativity is part of a fully functioning personality. Science continually finds highly creative people are walking contradictions. They're more introspective and high-functioning in many ways, but may contain attributes of depression or what is viewed as being crazy. They're usually blind to a crippling traitor belief that continually alienates others, which gets categorized as being cuckoo. The myth that creators are crazy stems from being more sensitive than others, which gets described as crazy by those not experienced in diagnosing mental illness. Myth. You need to pass a personality test. No personality test can determine if someone's creative or not. This goes especially for any test a high school guidance counselor administers. If you've been told you're not creative after taking a test, scientists have proven time and time again these personality tests lack the nuance needed to test creativity. Charlie Kaufman, who wrote some of the most creative movies of recent years such as Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Adaptation, and Human Nature, has said, We're all great writers when we're dreaming. In our minds, there's always the potential to be creative. It just needs to be nurtured. One of the most common contradictions creative people display is qualities of both introversion and extroversion. They're hard to pin down because their personalities are more complex than others. A study of heavy metal musicians showed that they're both bold and brash while being sensitive and shy. They possess a plethora of traits that contradict stereotypes, which is why they make for great stories since it's hard for us to understand the complexity of their personalities. Myth. If you're not an amazing creator as a teenager, you won't be one as an adult. If you've ever listened to Mark Maron's WTF podcast, you've probably noticed a trend. Many of the most accomplished creative guests on the show weren't that way as children. It's a common discussion that there may have been a small part of them that was a seed for the great creator they would become. 
but it wasn't fully nurtured until later in life. Every study on the subject shows that there's no correlation between being a great creator as a child and later as an adult. The overrepresentation of stories of creators who were great in their childhood stems from the story not being very interesting if that creativity doesn't amount to anything in adulthood. Only the success stories are told. While being creative at a young age can give you a head start, dedication to the pursuit of your craft at any age is much more important. Who you are as a creator today can be dramatically different after a few years of creating regularly. Myth. You need to have natural talent to excel at creativity. By definition, the word talent is a natural aptitude or skill. So when we discuss talent, it's implied you're born with these skills. Which brings us to why I avoid using the word talent throughout this book. Anyone who's worked in music long enough has come to see that being good at any skill comes easily to some who are seemingly born with it, whereas others work hard to acquire a skill. What's not discussed is that of those two roads you can take, being good at a skill doesn't matter as long as you get there. Great music is made by both those who come to it naturally and to those who worked hard to get there. What's commonly perceived as inherited is actually that the children of creators are nurtured by giving more time to create. By gaining that practice at an earlier age than those who work hard to become highly creative, they're perceived as superior. When it comes time to make creative work throughout our life, neither group creates superior work as long as they put in the time to learn the dynamics of creating. This is why I discuss proficiency instead of talent, since it doesn't matter which way you get there as long as you do get there. Creative weight training. The idea that creativity should come easily to those who go on to do great things discourages many would-be creators from pursuing their endeavors since they don't immediately have the attention span or the skills to create great work. This thought neglects the fact that many of the skills you need to be highly creative takes an immense amount of practice. Nearly every part of creativity takes practice that eventually gets you in shape to create easily. Time. When I first started working in a recording studio, doing a six-hour session felt like an eternity. Within a year, I could do a 14-hour day with no problem. Fifteen years later, sustaining an 18-hour day isn't hard for me as long as I don't do too many in a row. Expecting to jump into 10-hour days in the studio without losing your attention span or getting exhausted is unrealistic. Most of us need to build up stamina for long days of creation. Arrangements Most musicians start out learning simple three-chord pop songs building up to the ability to remember long, complex melodies. To get good at complex arrangements, you need to first learn the basics. Don't expect Bohemian Rhapsody to come out of you before you've learned Basket Case. Commitment Committing to decisions is a practice that takes time. At first, musicians are uneasy about commitment in case they need to revisit an element of a song. In time, as you become confident the decisions you make are right, it becomes progressively easier to commit. Ego depletion. This unfortunately named term is the idea that every time you navigate through a creative crossroad throughout your day, you get more exhausted. Dr. Roy Baumeister discovered this in a study where he stated, your finite willpower becomes depleted with each decision you have to make and each unfamiliar interaction you have to have. This relates to creativity in that every person only has so many decisions they can make without taking a break before they make poor decisions or giving up on making good decisions. Building up your resistance to ego depletion not only takes time by going through the creative process, but it also takes strategy. By committing to production choices and utilizing templates, you spend less time making decisions which frees your brain to sustain its creative fuel. Many quote-unquote life hackers take this to the extreme, where they'll have the same breakfast every day to save their brains for making more pressing decisions. While this example is excessive, the practice of ridding your life of pensive decisions before creating can help you use your creative power as effectively as possible. Making decisions during pre-production instead of long studio days can make the process of deep reconsideration in the studio more effective. Cancer as I began work on this book, I was diagnosed with papillary thyroid cancer. This book only exists from the past developments of previous cancer research, 
Being in remission from cancer today, I give a portion of every sale to cancer research since I wouldn't be here to share these thoughts without past research. Hopefully more research will help to stop cancer from taking so many lives away from us that would have otherwise gone on to share great creative ideas. Reading this book, I've decided to tinker with normal book formats by giving you a musical accompaniment. Every musician mentioned in this book is linked to a single Spotify playlist I made here. I figured it may be helpful to illustrate the book by easily ingesting the many musical references. If you bought the ebook format of this book, there's tons of links and a bibliography in the back that I call Further Reading that spells out what I learned from a lot of the books if you want to go deeper on any particular subject in this book. You can find all of that at processingcreativitybook.com extras. If you're interested in going deeper on any subject, all of it is just a click away on our website. Legal disclaimer. While I've worn cheap suits, you should check with the proper doctor or legal experts before trying anything in this book. To see more, please go to processingcreativitybook.com. Chapter 1. Making the music you love is the only way to make music other people love. Aspiring musicians are always looking for a common trait in the musicians they love that enables them to make such great music. They figure if they can find the secret trait, they can emulate it to write music millions of people love just like those they admire. Within the first paragraph of this book, I'm going to give away the secret that every musician I know with a huge fan base understands. They make the music they want to hear not the music they think their audience wants to hear. They don't say cliches like, this is what's popular, and it'll make us rich. This is what everyone will be into next year. Everybody's doing this, so we gotta start doing it. The great musicians of any genre or era let their emotions guide them by making music that fills an emotional need inside of them. After they've expressed that emotion, listeners then connect with it when they need an emotional void filled. Don't get me wrong. Not every song that's made by musicians making what they love gets popular. If it were that simple, this would be an essay, not a book. There are tons more moving parts to this puzzle, but this is both the first and most important part of the songwriting process that musicians get wrong. It's a linchpin that if left missing causes the wheels to fall off since emotionally vacant music fails to have any emotional impact that connects to listeners. In my experience, every single act that's made music to cash in or get popular has failed. And every producer I've ever discussed this with has said the same thing. The musicians we've seen passionately working to make what they want to hear, tirelessly plugging away to perfect what they need to hear, go on to have at the very least a small but passionate fan base, as long as they put in the work to get others to hear it. Whereas the acts who disingenuously make music to please others can't even get their significant others to buy a record to support their music. Getting through a song that's made to please the masses is a painful experience. It's emotionless, since it's not guided by authentic emotions. The musical chameleons who imitate someone else write songs with no feeling since it's only a diluted emotion of another person's authentic emotions. Instead, this watered-down music fills in the blanks of a coloring book, which is the least emotionally resident art form possible. When you're creating to please others, you always guess at what will be resident since you can't know what others want to hear. This guessing game leads you down a rabbit hole that makes writing consistently great songs nearly impossible. No one wants to hear music made to please others. Those who make music with motives of achieving commercial success, as opposed to making the music they want to hear, don't even want to hear their own music. There's a mind-boggling statistic that 20% of the songs on Spotify have never been listened to once. Just as awful, a large percentage of the songs on iTunes have never even been purchased. 
There are many reasons for this, but one culprit is there's no feeling to be found in the countless emotionally vacant songs, so even the writers or their loved ones would never subject themselves to another listen to this insincere garbage. Sadly, we've all had this commodity in music form pushed on us at some point in our lives as they strike a pose through music instead of trying to connect with us emotionally. Whether it's a country music documentary on Johnny Cash, or the excellent Stretch and Bobbito documentary on 90s hip-hop, those interviewed talk about quote-unquote, music that speaks from the heart. This music authentically comes from what the musician loves instead of trying to do what someone else wants them to do. There's a reason one of the most overused lyrical cliches is, my heart's a compass, right behind, follow your heart. Every artist creating great music is expressing an emotion, which they let guide them to a sound that makes them feel that emotion in a stronger way. I know the idea that you need to love the music you make is counterintuitive to the stigma that listening to your music is for narcissistic, self-absorbed douchebags. In 2015, Apple even shamed Jamie Foxx for enjoying his own song in an iPhone commercial. But this trait is the commonality in everyone who makes great music. However, we shouldn't confuse this with musicians never wanting to hear their song again after it's recorded. Writing, rehearsing, and recording, along with the paralysis of creative decisions you make along the way, is enough to have a sore spot towards a song for a lifetime. When making the music you love collides with expectations. The love a musician has for the music they make gets complicated with success. Artists suddenly have to keep the money coming in to support their team, who holds a financial interest in their music. To make matters worse, fans have expectations and musicians think they should live up to them in order to sustain their success. Sophomore slumps are often caused by giving in to the expectations of fans, money, or commercial success instead of the artist listening to what their heart wants to do, just as they did when no one was expecting anything from them on their debut record. Humans develop emotionally, as well as the naturally occurring development of what inspires them. Therefore, the music that's emotionally resonant with you changes as your emotions change. Inevitably, you experience different parts of life evolving along the way. This is why you see your favorite bands struggle after they become successful and continue to grow further from their original sound. They know they get a paycheck by making music they no longer emotionally feel resonance towards. This payday is at risk if they follow their emotions by changing their sound to one that's emotionally resonant to them. This is why you see musicians make big changes to their sound instead of making the record their fans want to hear. They're listening in their heart instead of the sound of those throwing money at them. One of the most overused thoughts in rock criticism is that you have your whole life to write your first album, which is why debut albums are often the most impressive work in an artist's catalog. This thought ignores that the artist probably made releases with other bands or wrote all the songs in the past six months, disregarding older material that wasn't presently resonating with them. The main thought this neglects is that external forces haven't begun to tug at the songwriter, which is the much more common culprit for a poor showing on a second album. Whether it's financial gain, writing hookier songs, having a hit, or following whatever trend a clueless suit thinks will lead to success, the advice to not follow your most emotionally resonant instincts gets hurled at you the second your music receives the claim. Instead of being advised to just keep getting better at doing what you do, an army of quote-unquote professionals tries to influence the musician instead of letting them continue the authentic expression of what they feel, which is what made their music connect with an audience in the first place. Time and time again, the musicians who resist outside pressures by writing their most emotionally potent truth allows them to sustain writing great songs. It's not just financial gains that tug at the musicians after they become successful. As a musician grows emotionally past their old self, an illusion of a catch-22 occurs. They can make their fans happy by making a record of their old sound that's no longer resonant to them, or they can follow their musical inclinations that their fans may find alienating. Most great musicians know there's no choice but to follow their heart. For example, 
Blink-182 could no longer do songs about dog farts in their 30s, so they had great success with their huge sound departure on their self-titled record. Radiohead had to make music outside the confines of a guitar after OK Computer since they had mastered that expression. Daft Punk can't make another homework or discovery since that's not what's emotionally resonant to them. They're all following their emotions by making the music they want to hear. If there's no feeling, there can be no great art. If there's no feeling, just forget about it. Ray Bradbury. The choice between doing what the fan base wants versus doing what your heart is telling you to do is framed as safe versus risky. But defying what the heart wants is the riskiest move of them all. Fans will say, just make part two of your last album, or make more songs like this one. These critiques are regularly seen through the prism of business advice where the customer's always right. But what's definitely not right is trying to make it an emotional connection with someone when your heart isn't present. The only directional concern for a musician should be fulfilling an authentic emotional expression of what's inside them since anything else leads to music no one wants to hear. Badly navigating this concept has doomed many musicians' careers. When they make the music the fans want to hear without it being emotionally resonant to them, the fans call it hollow and soulless. You can make a list longer than the pages of this book of musicians who make the experimental record they want to make, fans revolt, so they return with an uninspired version of their fan-preferred sound that never has the emotional impact of when that sound was emotionally resonant to them. To the listener, there's something missing they can't place their finger on that doesn't feel right. The missing element is the emotional connection between the artist and listener. However, when the band makes the music they want to hear, they either come up with a record that alienates fans or a record that's celebrated. The safe option of a crowd-pleasing record only works when that sound is still emotionally resonant to a musician. The only safe option is doing what your heart wants since that's the only way your music will continue to be resonant to your audience. This choice can also lead to musicians regretting their decisions. When I interview musicians who made a record inspired by making more money or what a suit told them to do, they're always regretful they didn't trust their heart by doing what they knew was right. They learned the lesson, but it's too late and their career is done. When the musician does what their heart wanted and it doesn't connect with their audience, they always have a more peaceful demeanor, as they don't regard it as a regret. They accept that it was all they could do, and for whatever reason, their audience wasn't in the same place as them. There's no choice but to make the music you want to hear, since the other option is always regret and failure. This extends past my experience as well. If you watch any documentary on someone who made a great work, the most common correlation between all of them is an artist saying, I made it for myself. There was a void. They wanted a flavor they weren't tasting or an emotion they weren't feeling in other artists' work. Despite the never-ending vacuousness of many stars today, you never hear that they made music to get made, paid, and laid. Even the dumbest genre-defining hair metal bands or pop stars will talk about how no one was doing what they were, so they had to make it for the rest of the world to hear. When Natalie Maines of the Dixie Chicks talks about working with Rick Rubin, she says he lets music be discovered, not manufactured which is an artful way of describing the origins of great music. Rubin being one of the most successful producers in music history, with an unparalleled track record that spans both unknown acts and established artists across nearly every genre, has an undeniable understanding of how to craft a great song. He says, Any commercial considerations get in the way. If you think about music that gets on the radio, you won't be using your own voice in its most potent form. Competing and concerned about what others think gets in the way of good music. It's not hard to figure out why writing songs about your passions results in songs that sound passionate to others. Inherently, these passions are what we feel strongest about, so they'll evoke the strongest response inside us. They compel us to work tirelessly at getting our expression right. When we follow the compass of our emotions, we gain that added benefit that anything we're passionate about puts a wind in our sails, which makes any endeavor easier. Ask anyone who's fallen in love as they describe the intense feelings of when someone understands them. 
When we connect with each other through the emotions of a song, it's very much the same. Creativity in music is different than creativity in other fields. As someone known for producing quote-unquote emo, short for emotional music, I need to make the distinction that all music is emotional. When we listen to music, we're solely concerned with the feeling and emotional reaction. Even in genres where technical prowess is rewarded, those who make emotional music coupled with proficient musical performances are the ones who connect with listeners. We've all heard thousands of songs that listeners judge on whether they elicit a strong emotional reaction. When they inspire no reaction, we have no interest in hearing them again. While this is largely true of cinema, fine art, photography, and a handful of other fields, it's not always the case in every field where creativity is discussed. In science, utility and innovation are the only qualities that are rewarded. In business, creativity is almost exclusively used for problem-solving and occasionally emotional. In advertising, all that matters is if you get users to change their behavior to consume the product you're advertising. While that may be done by manipulating emotions, creativity is only rewarded if you get the desired behavior from the ad. While design can often be emotional, it's mostly determined by function. It can spark emotion, but emotion isn't the most determinative factor in what's rewarded in design. Sadly, creative advice in today's content farms is lumped together to be as broadly applicable as possible to gain the maximum amount of clicks from readers. The advice that's dispensed about creativity is given as if it applies to every field when music is often an exception since it's ruled by emotion. Since different creative fields have different objectives, the advice dispensed lacks the broad appeal they hope to achieve and falls flat when an audience takes it in. Despite the views of money-hungry suits, music is only commodified when it has emotional potency. When we discuss creativity in music, it's often judged by playing complex scales or making sounds that have never been heard before. But since music's goal is to inspire an emotional reaction, creativity in the field is actually about finding an alignment with your musical ideas to craft an emotionally resonant song. Creativity should be applied to the alignment of all the elements in a musical composition so they're working together to make the most emotionally potent version of your song possible. A lack of concern for being judged. When you consider the judgment of your music by others, it makes it less potent. Judging which artists make a great or creative work is called a systems model. Van Gogh, The Velvet Underground, Goblin, and Refused, along with countless others, weren't appreciated in their time. But it doesn't make them any less artistic or take away their vast influence on the world. This is not to say music criticism is useless. The discussion of any craft is beneficial to furthering an understanding of the deeper thought communicated that's not always said out loud by the artist. But to judge an artist's creativity based on groupthink or systems model misses out that creative work needs to stimulate the creator first, then the world around them next. In this book, I focus on you being happy with what you create since you can control that. Sadly, the tastes of the world won't always be aligned with your emotional expression. If you make polka-infused atonal piano treatments to express your emotions, the world may never come around since they probably find that rhythm annoying and out-of-key notes hard to listen to. You can never control whether the world finds you creative or not, so start by making music you love and ignore the world's judgments until you do. Let's instead discuss how you develop a process to make the best creative version of your song. If you devote yourself to finding how you can make the most emotionally resonant music you can, I'm sure you can come up with the music that both you and others enjoy. Thanks for listening to this chapter. Stay tuned next week for another chapter. Like I said, this is available till July 1st for free. The Kindle book is 99 cents on Amazon till July 1st as well. And if you enjoy this, please, 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 please tell other people about it. That's why I'm doing this. Thank you so much for listening.